conversation, I want to take a quick moment to thank you all for joining us with your first cup of coffee or fourth. My name is Ian Machin. I am the CEO and founder of Ludian LLC, a transportation consultancy based in Henderson in Southern Nevada. I'm being joined as always by CBC CEO Consulting, Chris Barker. Morning, Chris. Good morning. And Professional Mobility Technology Advisor, Dan Langford. Morning, Dan. Good morning. Also, a quick introduction to our marketing manager, Zachary Zolowich, who will be assisted in the background with questions via the chat window. So during our session this morning, if anybody has a burning question, then please drop in the chat window. Zachary will pick it up and then he'll let you into the conversation. If you haven't attended one of our coffee and conversations before, we aim to bring meaningful, meaningful excuse me, I'll get my cup of coffee and then we'll go again. Meaningful conversation between government and industry through relaxed, interactive format and ideally over your favorite cup of coffee. Today, we are very excited to have Alyssa Rodriguez as our featured guest. Morning, Alyssa. Good morning. As we talk about cities reinvented, so how advancements in technology and transportation and urban planning will impact city design now and well into the future. Alyssa is currently the Director of IT for the City of Henderson here in Nevada, as well as the International President of the ITE, the International Transportation Engineers, who represents the global transportation community. That said, Alyssa, welcome to our second Coffee and Conversation. Uh, you've had a very exciting uh, career today. Please, please tell us where it all started and run us through it. Exciting if you're into engineering and uh, information technology, I guess, right? <laughs> as, we, as, we, as we all are. Yeah, we all are. We love it, yeah. Uh, sure. So, yeah, I started my college career thinking I was going to be an architect and that's it about Esther when I realized that um, it was a little more subjective than I had intended. And so I jumped into engineering and ultimately fell into transportation engineering and joined a research facility on campus and uh, had a really awesome opportunity to come to Las Vegas and start working for the former Clark County traffic manager. Um, worked for a really small firm where we did everything, um, all the technical work, all the data collection, uh, but we also answered the phones and wrote the proposals. So awesome experience there. And then in 2008, I got the chance to join the city of Henderson. And again, you know, it's an opportunity to work for a big organization and lots of different things pop up. So I spent a lot of time there working on our asset management system and learned a lot about how IT works, not necessarily the, the um, super technical stuff in the background, but more about how the systems in the background interface with the front end of a, of a piece of software and how that all relates to the end user and how things are set up in the background and databases and all of that. And then I, I had a great opportunity to go to the city in North Las Vegas for a couple of years. And so uh, while I was there, I not only started as their city traffic engineer, but I served as their fleet manager. And, which was a whole different experience to me. So I, I'd had the maintenance experience from Henderson um, and maintenance is maintenance regardless of the asset, but of course, fleet, yeah. fleet is, fleet's a little bit different. They're unique. 
for sure. And there's um, a lot of competing interests that are that want um, you know something that Fleet can provide. So a great experience there. And then um, I got to come back to City of Henderson as their traffic engineer. And um, recently uh, I was working on our smart cities efforts. We had an internal task force for smart cities. And so a lot of what's happening in the world around smart communities and smart cities is related to transportation. Um, plus I had a little bit of a technical background through my work on our asset management program. So it was kind of a natural fit. And then when uh, uh, this opportunity came up to be the IT director, uh, it was one of those situations where you just really can't say no. It was a great opportunity to continue working on the things that I'm doing for smart communities around the transportation mm -hmm. world, but also dive a little bit deeper into all of the other technical pieces that make the, the city keep running. Especially these days, um, more than ever, we realize how important the IT services really are to keeping our, keeping our city sustainable. Wow, very, very career, Lisa. That And that's a fantastic way to gain lots of insights into different industry uh, and different parts of, of a city that make up uh, where we are today. I'd like to pick up one of your points and open it up to, to, to you and the group, really. So we start with you, Alyssa. Uh, you mentioned about smart cities there. And obviously, uh, it's a, a word of contention with lots of people. Obviously, your background within uh, IT and technology, as well as uh, transportation planning and fleet, so when somebody talks to you about smart cities, what does that, what does that mean to you? What, what does that say to you? Yeah, I'll be curious to hear what, what Dan and Chris have to say about this too. But, you know, I'll tell you, one of the interesting things about being IT director is I got, I get a lot of sales calls. And I, I, I get the sense that we're starting to feel a little smart cities fatigue. And I think it has to do a little bit with the sales pitch piece of it. And it's going to be really interesting now that um, we're in a changing economy to see how this really evolves. But I, in, in, I think there's a ton of great ideas out there. And I think people really in their hearts want to do the right thing, but smart cities in some ways feels a little gimmicky. And so I, the city of Anderson has taken a lot of time to kind of step away from the the thought of that it's necessarily a purchase, but more of a philosophy in how we can provide um, sustainable and resilient services for our residents um, in a manner that that they want. So right now, people want things from the ease of their own home and. Uh, in order to keep business going, we have to do electronic plan submittal and we need to have those contacts and touch points with our residents without them uh, leaving their homes. And so it, for us, it's been, you know, how, how do we do things that make sense that either make the government work better or allow us to connect better with our residents? And, you know, my experience in infrastructure and maintenance means how do we build those pieces to make all of that happen? So before you buy the new thing, how do you uh, set up the power and the communications to make that all work? Sure. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, Alyssa, I'm just casting my mind back to the, to the DOT uh, Smart City Challenge that I believe Chris was actually involved in. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that kind of launched everything or made it public. And I recall kind of reinforcing what you were saying. There was so many companies pitching pieces of a solution that no one really understood. Um, and it was never complete. And I think a lot of those companies who had these, you know, data platforms and smart city solutions didn't really understand cities and how complicated and difficult it is to sell a single widget <laughs> to solve all these problems. And, and even as they broke it down and explored it, you know, the complexity and the fact that every city is completely different, um, uh, as you said, over the last four years or so is has kind of proven out. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that your phone calls have probably reduced over time, but maybe not. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess we'll not. Take that as a no. We'll, yeah, we'll take that as a no then. Chris? Yeah, I, listen, I, I'm just curious. I you, you talked about the smart cities piece. When you look at what's happened in Nevada in the last many years, what, what kind of examples come to mind of what you think has been an, an advancement uh, to benefit the greater Southern Nevada region of the state and would fall into that smart cities bucket? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting because like I said, a lot mm -hmm. of what happens in the smart cities arena is focused on transportation. And I think a lot of that has to do with people that maybe aren't traditionally involved in transportation. Uh, aren't, I should say, let me qualify that, aren't traditionally involved in the design and planning of their community's transportation. Um, are involved in technology and they experience issues every day. They sit in congestion or they have a late bus or a late train and they just don't have the information to tell them uh, about those kinds of things and they, they want that. And so they wanna get involved and they wanna offer solutions. And so I think that's why we're seeing a lot of iteration around transportation. Um, one of the, the most interesting ones I think that's happened for the uh, Vegas Valley, and I think Dan is fairly familiar with this, is the Waycare platform, which has uh, the ability to uh, recognize that an incident has occurred on the freeway and gets information out to an operator very quickly. And in many cases, um, many minutes before the 911 call comes in. It also gives the uh, first responders the situational awareness to know exactly where that incident has occurred. Because a lot of times when the call comes in, the person on the freeway doesn't know exactly where they are, or even in what direction necessarily that they're traveling. So this gives them a huge a lot of amount of information and every second that you can shave off of that response time is huge. Uh, the other cool thing is that it's an artificial intelligence platform and so it's continuously learning and so it's able to pull in, in that information and start to analyze conditions and tell the operators that okay something's happening in this piece of the freeway and you're going to want to take action because we're anticipating that there's going to be an incident there's going to be a crash something's going to occur and so they've done things proactively like just placing an empty police vehicle out on the freeway to kind of encourage people to uh, slow down and pay attention to their surroundings. And it's made yeah. a big difference. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. It work, yeah. yeah, it's a it's pretty amazing platform. Oh, it does work, yeah. I mean, for me, it's like smart cities, like I said, it's a, it's a statement or a word that's been around for a number of years now. And, but it means lots of things to different people. Uh, if you step outside the transportation industry, uh, I was talking to an organization that did uh, watering for, for, for plants at the side of the road, you know, uh, foliage and greenage. 
And they went away from having a, a timed watering system to one where if it rained or if the soil was already wet and already moist from previous, it didn't water the plants. And that was for them a smart initiative. So it's, you know, for me, it's lot, lots of these different elements and different parts of a, of a community or a city that if we integrate all these different solutions, then we, we get a benefit for the whole community, obviously, rather than, you know, the sort of individual uh, the verticals that, that you know, we're, we're all involved in. So it's a, it's an evolution uh, and change. And we're seeing it all around us with some of the comments you made, uh, then Melissa and the guys, you know, around, you know, specific uh, single pieces of innovation or, or, or smartness that, a smart city for me is, or a smart community is all these things coming together that benefits the, the, the whole rents and the whole industry. You know, on a related note, uh, a lot of the smart city work has been around clean energy and reducing carbon emissions and how that can benefit everything from transportation to building design. Um, kind of curious, Alyssa, from your seat being an engineer, and particularly with this backdrop with COVID, with so much of a drop in pollution because nobody's driving cars, what, what do you see as kind of the future for clean technology and building design and transportation networks and how you and your team might be approaching that subject as we go forward as well? Sure. Yeah, it's certainly something that we've had a lot of conversations around and um, City of Henderson has spent a lot of time, um, we've leveraged the, um, the energy payback, energy savings grants that are, it's grants is the wrong word, but um, the energy savings programs that allow us to invest in cleaner infrastructure and more efficient infrastructure. Uh, and then you pay back the bonds based on your energy savings over time. And so we've done a, a lot of work. We were the first city in the Valley to uh, change out our streetlights to the induction technology. And we cut our energy bill, our streetlight energy bill in half doing that. Um, we've gone to um, more efficient heating and cooling technology in our buildings and um, the same with the lighting systems in our buildings and um, spent a lot of time on those kinds of things so that not only do we reduce the energy consumption, but also renew, reduce the need for the, the human capital as well for the, the our uh, maintenance technicians can spend more time on um, resident calls or um, some of the fixes inside of our buildings. So we've actually been able to expand, <clears throat> expand the city without <clears throat> having to actually hire a whole lot of additional people, which tends to sustainability. Um, when you're talking about uh, like our fleet, which I'm fairly familiar with, we spent, um, we, we have been able to leverage some funding. <clears throat> Excuse me, we've been able to leverage some funding um, federal money for congestion man mitigation to purchase things like cleaner street sweepers or our fleet vehicles that are all electric <clears throat> and install the electrical um, infrastructure within our uh, own city parking garages to encourage those kinds of vehicles. <clears throat> Looking long term, we've had conversations with companies like Tesla so that we can understand what they need not only from the public infrastructure and charging stations that need to be in public places, but 
things like building codes uh, for private residences that encourage the the connections for an electric vehicle to be installed in every vehicle or in every home standard so that residents have that option and it's not something that they have to add on after the fact when when they purchase a home. Uh, the same consideration for large multifamily buildings so that that infrastructure is in place when those uh, facilities go in in the first place rather than thinking about it after the fact because it's always harder to retrofit those kinds of things. So it's interesting when you're a city, you not only think about it as far as the things that the city needs to provide the residents in the public realm, but also the things that we impact just from the development side. So what kind of requirements are there for commercial buildings or multifamily buildings or for personal homes to make things more sustainable for the future? Fantastic. So a lot of the work is around obviously preparing for uh, and planning for and having the the base infrastructure there to to make that change or that progression of change to to that new environment. Yeah, that sounds like my theme for today, I think, is base infrastructure. We have to have it there to make it work, right? <laughs> we need power. We need comms. We need it now. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's what happens Thank when you, you know, spend a lot of your time with the maintenance teams is you have to think about. Well, yeah. You know, how do I sustain do this stuff once it's in place? How do how do I fix it? How do I get to it? All of that stuff because that matters. Oh yeah, oh it does. And I think obviously your your uh, experience today, Alyssa, puts you in a very unique position that not a lot of people have that have that multi view that can say, hey, you know, yes, we need to you know implement this new uh, system technology or do an upgrade or do a change, but you know, hey, we need it to run for the next twenty years. Are we doing it the right? Are we making the right steps? Are we are we attacking it in the right way to enable uh, that infrastructure to have a uh, a good lifespan? You know, so from like cradle to grave, you know, is it is it going to uh, uh, operate as we wish? Is it going to be future proof to a level we can't future proof uh, uh, entirety? But you know, it, it's having that. Uh, vision to be able to do that and i think that with a lot of cities uh doesn't happen so you know and also if a city has a, a rolling program or a, a, a location has a rolling program that technology changes sometimes so fast that day one installation the technology is already obsolete so when we come to day 365 on a, on a year program you know we, we put in actually different technology than we did on day one. So like you said, that, that base infrastructure is very important and to ensure that, uh, like I said, everything's there ready uh, before and, and future-proofed. Uh, this takes us on to our uh, next topic we wanted to sort of like broach today with you. Uh, we're not going to go into, uh, obviously, the, the, the COVID-19 issues too much on, on this call, but obviously... It has had a big impact on our cities uh, and the transportation network and what's happened out there on the streets. So previously, you know, the the, the whole uh, the whole globe was looking to get people out of single-use vehicles and into mass transit so to help the environment, to help congestion. Now, obviously, we've seen this totally spin on its head, uh, you know, are we ever going to get back to mass transit? Is it now a pipe dream? You know, what's going to be that uh, 
that that vision and that change because you know cities now uh and states and, and the whole country and the whole globe are really gonna have to do that new focus on how to change that transportation industry model back on it's where it was yeah you know that's a really interesting question and i um you know i listened with great interest to your speaker last week who talked about uh, how you can operate a transit system and still ensure um, social distancing and how to make sure that the surfaces are clean and that there are even materials that you can utilize to um, that won't allow uh, viral and bacterial growth on those surfaces, surfaces inside of the transit vehicles. And so I think um, there's gonna have to be a level of comfort with the public that those actions are being taken by their transit agencies before they feel comfortable really moving back into those. And it is interesting to see the, the push, you know, uh, OSHA requirements for our um, construction and maintenance workers here in the valley says that it's one person per vehicle and so we're, we're kind of trending in that direction which if it continues just isn't it isn't sustainable you know you can't build enough roadway infrastructure to support everybody in a vehicle I think the the converse perspective of that there's two things that are happening is first of all we're realizing that the the people that don't have cars are at somewhat of a disadvantage. You see the images on the news of people crammed into um, very busy subway cars or onto buses, and that does increase your exposure level, unfortunately, when you're experiencing a global pandemic. And so it just kind of emphasizes the fact that um, those are critical workers. Um, they have a requirement for transportation, and we owe it to them to provide them with a, a system that works for everyone and that um, personal vehicles just aren't an option for, for all, all workers out there. The other thing that I find really interesting, and this could have an effect on how we design our communities for the future and what, what urban design really looks like in the future, is you're seeing without all the cars on the road, you're seeing so many more people walking and biking. Uh, it, I, I was on the strip uh, on Saturday and we took our bicycles and rode the entire length from basically the welcome to Las Vegas sign all the way into downtown by um, the, the, the downtown Las Vegas and the Fremont Street experience. And I would say that we were alone, um, but there were so many other people out there riding bicycles and not just, not just adults like me and my husband, but people with kids, uh, you know, there were little kids in trailers, there were people with their dogs, there were people, um, you know, with their kids on, you know, bicycles with, uh, with training wheels. So that level of comfort that the lack of vehicular traffic out there created was amazing. I mean, clearly people wanted to experience the strip that way. They'd just never been able to do it before. And so I think we're seeing that that, that demand is there. We've just never created that opportunity. It, it's been really fascinating. And I see it, uh, the strip is one example, but you see it all over the valley. So Alyssa, are there any thoughts around how to enable that? I mean, I've seen in other cities previously, you know, where they, especially in Europe, where they 
shut down certain areas of the city for you know a day on the weekend um, and, and things like that for that for that exact purpose. Um, is there a current conversation around how you make that happen, or it's still getting there? Yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting to see. Definitely, um, you know, the strip is strip is one of those places that. Um, having a lot of having congestion isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I remember one of my first jobs was to do the traffic signal timing on the strip. And so I, I had a GPS device and a laptop and drove up and down the strip from 10 PM to midnight on Fridays and Saturdays. And it was consistently took 45 minutes to go three miles. Um, wow. <laughs> and, but that's positive for casino owners because they want that visibility and it's perfectly understandable. So I, I think if anything, if something does change, there's a possibility that maybe, maybe on a Saturday morning that they could close off a lane and allow people to ride their bikes uh, when the weather's beautiful like it is now and just experience yeah. the strip that way. And maybe we saw people taking advantage of the RTC's bike share um, and we saw a group of like 15 people that were utilizing that one day. So, you know, pe people are interested in it. And maybe if there's just a confined amount of time, at least to start with, maybe that's something that the strip could embrace. But it, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, so I think um, I think Keolis, the transit operator, told me once that the average speed on the strip is actually four miles an hour. So that's a great thing. And I guess I was more asking about Henderson itself. I mean, I can imagine Water Street. Um, becoming more of a pedestrian area on a regular basis. Um, the strip's a little more difficult. I completely understand that one. <laughs> yeah, that you know that's a great question, Dan. And I appreciate that um, because one of the things I'm really, really excited about in Henderson is um, the Golden Knights are um, constructing an additional hockey facility that's going to be city, similar to City National Arena. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it, right next to City Hall. We actually removed our aging convention center and we're building a hockey facility in place. So it's going to be very similar to what's in Summerlin and I'll have two ice rinks and a restaurant and some meeting spaces. It's also going to be the headquarters for the AHL team. Uh, but the really cool part from a transportation perspective is that it's been a huge opportunity to transform our downtown. We've been spending a lot of time and effort lately to make our downtown more pedestrian and bicycle facility. And uh, if you go into the casino area, you can see that we've widened sidewalks and we've created pedestrian bulb outs. And there's a lot of um, uh, architectural spaces there that make it more comfortable for pedestrians, even some urban park type situations. And so with the construction of this hockey facility, we're converting the piece of Water Street between Basic and Atlantic into basically um, a pedestrian plaza. So vehicles will still be allowed to go through there, but at a very slow speed, and the primary users will be the pedestrians. Uh, this kind of arose from the fact that our parking garage is across the street from the hockey facility and we wanted people to be, feel comfortable and to be safe when they cross that roadway. But it also gave us a huge opportunity to 
transform that plaza, connect it to the roadway system. And so we have a lot of events in that area and it'll all seem seamless now. And so it's under construction right now and I, I just can't wait to see what happens. It's gonna be really neat. It'll be similar to what you've seen in other urban areas like Denver where they've converted um, street spaces to be more pedestrian friendly. So it's gonna be a huge opportunity for Henderson and just a, an advancement of what we've already done in our downtown area. Uh, Chris, you got any comments to add yeah, on that? I'm just going to ask, uh, you, were, you mentioned a moment ago, Alyssa, about this um, current COVID backdrop and trying to get people comfortable with getting back into a shared transportation setting. As you talk about these projects that are under development in Henderson and parts of Las Vegas, how, what advice do you have in terms of how to strike a balance of getting, creating more walkable, more public transit-enabled areas with this current health concern that we have and what's the time frame in your mind you think it's going to take to get to some kind of a balance of those two uh, you know riding in a vehicle or transit or something somewhere in the middle yeah i think that brings up the the conundrum with um with higher capacity transit facilities right that uh, a lot of times you're not able to fund them to new areas because you don't have the population density to support them. But if you have people move into an area and they're used to using their personal vehicles, then you know many years later when you do bring the transit to them, they're, they're, they're used to taking their personal vehicles and it's a lot harder to encourage people to transition to mass transit. And so there's a couple of things that I, I see as being necessary to accomplish that. The first is, you know, planning out your communities very, very carefully. And Henderson does spend a lot of time on um, planning our communities and planning for where density is occurring and, and where we anticipating large populations of either employment or um, uh, where people are living. Um, planning your infrastructure so that you can support high capacity transit in the future. So you can plan for a roadway system that is supporting personal vehicles now, but can, has the right-of-way capacity to add a transit facility in the future. And making sure right off the bat that those pedestrian and bicycle connections are constructed first, so that the wider sidewalks and the safer bicycle facilities are already in place when you first construct those, those employment or um, residential areas. And then I think a little, we need some work around the the data behind uh, making those transit and transportation decisions. So to give you an example, the city of Henderson is in the southeast corner of the Las Vegas Valley. And a lot of our decisions around transportation are based on our regional travel demand model. And the model works well. Uh, it's been well developed over the last 30 years and we spent a lot of time and effort on it. Um, but it is a best predictor of the places central to the valley. So if you're located at um, Charleston and Maryland Parkway, the model is probably predicting pretty well what's going to happen in that area. But in the far corners of West Henderson, which is newly developed and will continue to develop over the next 20 years, the model volumes aren't particularly reliable. And in fact, we're seeing predictions for 2040 that are already being exceeded today in some of those areas. And so it just, it's just not ready for that. And so I think there's some advancements in data and 
um, data analysis that could be done to, to make those, those predictions better. And what's really cool is kind of leading back to our smart cities discussion is we have all these sensors everywhere and we have the computing capacity to take uh, a better look at what all of these real-time sensors are telling us. So why not take that to the next level and start to use it to provide better predictions of, of what's gonna happen on our transportation system. That's awesome. So I guess I'm gonna ask a question that's related to uh, some of the things you were saying before. I mean, a lot of this, these changes in cities are uh, convergences of technologies to some extent. Um, and I've seen that yeah, many times over my career, fortunately, which makes it fun. Um, you know, you talk about electrification and the sort of civil engineering side of cities. And obviously now with, um, you know, the connected vehicles and the data you're talking about, there's a very heavy, the IT component is increasing. Um, I guess I'd like to relate that because we haven't spoken about your role at ITE. Um, you know, how, how has the change in cities sort of matched um, how ITE has evolved? But actually, maybe it's a good, good, maybe explain who ITE is, ITE is very briefly. Sure. Um, and, and then maybe, yeah, talk about how sort of the membership is changing and how you see that changing going forward. Yeah, great question, Dan. Thanks. So was um, a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I can make it circle back. We'll figure it out. <laughs> but um so ITE is, uh, this is our 90th anniversary. We started in 1930 and our first meeting was in um, um, Pittsburgh. And um, You didn't start in 1930, right? I, I did not, no. <laughs> you look great for 1930. <laughs> looking good. Thanks, yeah. thanks. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> so yes, this is our 90th year as an organization. Um, we have just over 16,000 members worldwide, but most of them centered in North America. Um, uh, a lot of members in the United States and a lot of members in Canada. And it, it started out as the Institute of Transportation, or excuse me, the Institute of Traffic Engineers. And as our roles evolved, we became the Institute of Transportation Engineers. And now it's really time to just become ITE and just start using the letters because we're not just engineers anymore. You know, the folks that really have a huge impact on our transportation system aren't just the engineers. Uh, it's the planners that are making those long-term decisions and, and uh, working together with the landscape architects and the, the people in the political arena that are, are helping to make those long-term decisions. And, one of the things that's been really interesting uh, in my role in ITE is we've started to have what are called student leadership summits. And this was an idea that popped out out of a school in California and they wanted to, the students wanted to have their own conferences where they talked about leadership opportunities just for students. And the thought behind it is that the, the students have to organize the entire thing. So they have to figure out their location and they have to hire the caterer and they have to uh, get uh, arrange for the speakers and all of those pieces. But it really gives them an, inner, an opportunity to network and to get to know each other really well. And in my role as IT vice president and next year as president, uh, I get to travel to all of them across, the, across North America. And so in February, um, before all these re travel restrictions happened, I actually attended three. 
And the reason I bring this up is because a lot of those students were not engineers. There were a lot of planners. There were people involved in law that were interested in the legal side of the transportation system. There were people in landscape architecture and urban design, um, data scientists that saw the potential of all this data that's coming out of the transportation system and the opportunity to, to use that to, to better the system. So students are seeing it. And we know for the long-term sustainability of our organization uh, for ITE, we really need to focus on bringing in those people into our organization and making them feel welcome. One of the things that I always tell people is that if you wanna design a transportation system for everyone, then you better make sure that everyone has a voice. And so not only uh, have we embraced people from different um, different industries and encourage them to be members of ITE and to join our technical councils and to contribute to our technical documentation. But also we spent a lot of time on diversity and inclusion. So you see a lot, a very wide variety of um, people that are joining at the student level. And so we're working very hard to encourage that diversity and inclusion to um, rise throughout our organization and make sure that uh, all populations are represented and that they all have a voice. So it's been, it's been really fun in IT because that's my favorite part is making, I had an awesome experience as a student. They made me feel very welcome. And so I feel that that's my job as uh, uh, elected board members to make sure that everyone else feels really welcome and feels that ITE is a family. Related to that, Alyssa, I'm just curious with all these interesting advancements in transportation, whether it be autonomous vehicles, drones, you know, all these new things that are becoming potentially possible. How is that impacting uh, recruiting or people getting into the engineering field who suddenly see things in a new opportunity landscape that perhaps they hadn't seen previously? Sure. Yeah, I think um, the professional of the future has a varied background because just having you know, the ability to write a traffic impact study just isn't good enough anymore. Uh, not that those skills aren't hugely valuable, and they are, but there's a whole bigger picture that I think people need to see uh, as far as how, how does the technology integrate? How do I understand networking? How do I make sure that the, the power that I have to the, these devices is sustainable? How are the actions that I'm taking today uh, affecting the ability for people to access transit or to access the bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure? So it's kind of this big picture view. And with that, you know, we have to offer training that makes that possible, but also offer, offer the opportunities. And so ITE has spent a lot of time on um, developing our own training and our own technical documentation that covers a, a wider variety of topics, but also partnering with other organizations uh, such as NACTO or IEEE or ITS America um, to coordinate and, and offer those opportunities to our members um, to make sure that the expertise that those other organizations provide are available to our members that are dealing with those issues. And then, you know, when I, when I go out and talk to students, one of the things that I tell them is it's okay to try something different. Uh, it's, it's a different experience is always going to help you in those varied backgrounds and those varied perspectives, just expand your ability to provide uh, an excellent transportation system for the future. 
I'm a I'm a member of the ITE, and I would say recommend it to anybody because the pretend, you know the information out there you can access through ITE is fantastic, and it's a great organization like you said Alyssa you know people made very welcome and it's a great way to if you have a thought or a question or something to to pitch into the group and have you know so that industry experts really uh you know really come back to you with with something very credible so you know the the and the the breadth of knowledge like you said Alyssa different levels within that organization have have that different access to information it's not just about like I said, the traditional transportation engineers anymore is that real varied uh, level of, uh, of expertise that we need now. I'd like to jump now. Uh, we have a few questions coming in. Uh, so I'm going to jump to a few of our uh, uh, people who joined us today. I'd like to uh, welcome Barbara Mayer. Uh, Barbara has a question for the, uh, for the group. If you can un unmute Zachary, please. Hello, Barbara. I think she's still on mute. Mute. There we go. Barbara, good morning. Good morning. Hey, hey Barbara. Yeah, good morning. I, I good morning. I don't have a question. I was just sharing a link about Paris, what they're doing for protect um, protected bike lanes. Because I think, you know, designing streets for 8 to 80-year-olds is really the key, right? And if you're going to, all these bikes are being sold. I can't even try to get, we need another one and we can't get one. But I think, you know, having protected bike lanes is really important. So it was just an article I shared. No question. Oh, okay. Well, no, no, no. Good, good point there, uh, Barbara. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Alyssa, you know, you went down the strip, you know, on, on the bike and you saw, you know, people out there with the kids. And it, it shows that there is a, a want uh, to, to do this. You know, uh, a lot of cities now, and obviously I live in, in Henderson, uh, and there is a you know a number of streets that have the 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 bike lanes on there, uh, obviously marked off. But uh, yeah, a lot of the other you know European cities do have sort of like segregated uh, bike lanes. Uh, obviously, there's pros and cons for uh, for each different approach. But what does the group think to segregated cycle lanes or walking areas? You know, it's interesting because I I think in other models like in Europe and other places where more walkable communities, people spend more time in those communities, whether it's cafes or shops, they obviously spend more money in those areas versus a car-centric design. And I guess, Alyssa, I'm just curious from whether ad hoc or more of a structured format, are you and all of your peers kind of looking at these cities today that are suddenly walkable and bike friendly, more bike friendly, and kind of taking note and saying, hmm, maybe coming out of this current environment, are, are we going to change up the cityscape um, and, and learn from some of the, the positive uh, human experiences that are coming from being able to ride a bicycle all the way down the strip or do things that you could never do before? How much do you think that's going to change uh, city planning behaviors uh, long term? It's a, it's a great question. And Barbara, thank you for your comments. Um, because I think you're really seeing the evidence of that now that when people have a what they feel is a safer place to ride, they're more willing to be there and they're willing to take their kids. And, and you do see that the eight to 80 um, type rider out there um, enjoying the 
enjoying the bike ride and that the outdoors um, because they feel that they have a space available for them for that and so um, you see it in the discussions that are happening um, in ITE you see it in um, the media that that people are recognizing that and recognizing that there is that latent demand out there and that we we have a responsibility to provide those type of spaces um, because that's what that's what people want. Um, they maybe they we all just didn't realize it to now, or that some of us did and and just didn't really believe it until you see it happen. That's been the interesting thing. There's been a lot of instances of that with this uh, global pandemic of things you didn't realize were possible until until they happened, right? And so I think the interesting challenge for some of our Western cities, uh, in Western cities in the United States is going to be the fact that uh, we've uh, created a de development pattern that exists today. And we've created situations where there's a lot of residential that is a long way away from a commercial center or an employment center or a health facility. And so there, there just aren't necessarily those options available other than to take your personal vehicle. And so the real creativity, I think, is going to come in in figuring out how to transform our existing transportation network into something that includes all those different opportunities, whether it's the, the protected bicycle lanes or whether it's additional pedestrian facilities or even the mass transit opportunities to, to reach those communities that are perhaps uh, a little more isolated and you know, created under a different design. But going forward, I think we, we see that need is that it is very convenient um, when you're under a stay-at-home order, owner, order, excuse me, to be able to access something nearby in your own community. Um, for me, for example, my grocery store is um, less than a half a mile away. And so not only uh, can I get outside and walk to that facility just to get out of the house for a little bit, but the, the grocery store is right there. And so if I need something in an emergency, it is, it is readily available and I don't have to access the roadway system to get there. And so I think people are seeing that that's really valuable. And so I hope that as we go forward that people remember this, maybe not the, the painful bits of the pandemic, but the, the, the positive things that are coming out of it, that people really are getting out there and enjoying their transportation system and that it's, it is pleasurable to ride your bikes and that we consider that going forward, um, either when we're retrofitting what is existing or uh, moving ahead with a, with a new community and making sure that th maybe things are a little bit more compact and have those different opportunities built in. Yeah, yes, very true, very true. Um, I'm going to move on now. We've got another question because I'm conscious of, of time, wanting to make sure we, we service all our guests. So, uh, uh, Subhu Kamal uh, has, a, has a question for the group. Good morning, Hi, Ian. Uh, Subhu. Morning, yeah, afternoon, yeah. Hello, Ian. Um, afternoon, Subhu Kamal from TRL, uh, Transport Research Laboratory, UK. Uh, um, uh, the, my question is, um, uh, maybe most of the audience is aware of the background, or this may be a simple question, but uh, this was more about trying to understand the procurement model that you use to get uh, innovative solution solutions. For example, you mentioned about um, Waker uh, technology and how it worked for you. 
So did, did you go out with a sort of a detailed specification on a public tender and somebody like Baker come, came close to it or was it through some other innovative, because innovative model, I mean, it's not that I'm not asking about the details of the procurement, but what's, what was your experience and what would you recommend for other authorities like you? Yeah, great question. And I can speak to this for Henderson, but maybe we start with Dan because I think he might be more familiar with this in the first place. <laughs> yeah, Dan I thought know. that yeah. might come my way. Um, <laughs> so there's a history there and, and, and I'll try and yeah, do it really quickly. Uh, it was about three years ago, I, I kind of challenged some of the agencies to some extent here in, in the Las Vegas Valley with sort of an accelerated procurement process. Um, and what we attempted to do was reduce, and it was for innovative projects like pilots and, and you know, those things that aren't, you know, because it was high risk, we tried to reduce the impact. So it wasn't full-blown deployment at that time, but it was a way of enabling um, new innovative technologies. And what we did is we reduced the RFP to about four pages I think the request and the response was to be no longer as well. Um, and it was originally targeting uh, pedestrian safety at the time. Um, now Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada basically enabled that um, and it took a lot of effort. So changing the way, you know, large government agencies have done things for a very long time was incredibly difficult. Um, but it was a process and we worked through it and we, we basically made that happen. Um, the RFP went out again, looking at, uh, pedestrian safety and pedestrians crossing roads in particular, Las Vegas has lots of high speed wide arterials that are particularly dangerous can be, you know, half a mile between formal crossings or intersections, half a mile, quarter mile, a long way, longer than you want to walk in, you know, hundred degree heat. Um, and in response to that, we ended up with about 49 solutions from around the planet. Um, Waycare was one of them. Um, not, it wasn't quite answering this, the, uh, the question we were asking in the RFP, but it was an exciting enough new solution that it's, it gained a lot of traction here in, in Las Vegas over the last few years. And I think there are a lot of agencies who are now within the state, actually, and, and across the US that are now using that Waycare solution. So uh, yeah, I guess to answer the question, it was, <laughs> it was a long process and took a lot of changing of mindsets and a willingness to do it from executives within an organization to recognize that, you know, uh, experimenting with taxpayers' dollars wasn't the worst thing in the world um, because, you know, failing at a low cost, say under $50,000, was better than implementing a, a, a you know, multi-million dollar solution and realizing it was the wrong one after the fact. So, uh, you know, failing two or three times was actually a cheap way of you know, getting a good solution. So that's my quick rundown anyway. I don't know, Alyssa, if you want to add anything. Yeah, no, I, I think bringing up the fact that it's okay to fail and um, how you can manage, manage that risk in a government setting is really important that, um, it's okay to try things and maybe it's better to fail small than to fail big, right? Um, so when we, when we tried Waycare for the city of Henderson, we did go with a small pilot and, and uh, just went, went through it that way. And so we were able to try it out on a small scale um, and for a, an abbreviated period of time. 
one of the other things that we've utilized is a program called Startup in Residence. And it allows us to, rather than to very specifically detail the technology that we need, it kind of turns the procurement process on its head and we put out a problem statement, kind of like what Dan was describing for the pedestrian issue and say, okay, here's our problem statement. Uh, you tell us how your technology would solve this problem. And then you go through an interview process and you select the um, startup company that can provide this. And then you have a 16 week program for them to show you whether or not it works. And um, we tried several different uh, technologies that way. And some of them were more or less successful, but the really interesting thing with all of them, including our pilot with Waycare, was that we learned something out of it. So maybe we didn't end up purchasing the software, but we definitely learned something from it. Um, in particular, like Waycare, we learned that um, we, we need additional ability to monitor the intersections with video. And we have the ability to do that in some places, but not all places. And so maybe one of the areas that we need to focus on before we do a full rollout of the system is in enhancing our communications to our traffic signals and rolling out those video systems. So again, it was all really, it's all been really interesting. And um, Nevada law does give you a little leeway as for purchasing uh, information technology devices. And I think, doing something like just putting out a problem statement allows you to evaluate a vendor, um, which is the requirement in our purchasing laws, but maybe not in the traditional sense that an RFP would where you've already outlined all of the technical requirements. So I think there's some opportunities out there to be creative for sure. Okay, thank you. We have one last question coming from uh, Mark Ganeski. Are you there, Mark? Good morning, Mark. He's muted. Yeah, sorry. I think Zach and I were, uh, <laughs> were playing mute on mute games there for a second. Ah, uh, okay, okay, no worries. Thank you, uh, Ian. Uh, good morning, Alyssa. Um, I just want to know uh, what I'm trying to figure out is how the city of Henderson, RTC, all these other places, how do you approach cybersecurity? You're, you're talking about all of these new technologies, these smart city technologies. Um, we know that a lot of these technologies are using IOT and there have been uh, multiple breaches of other cities. Uh, as you're going through your RFI, RFP processes, are you looking at the uh, cyber risk of dealing with these technologies and integrating them into the city's networks? Yes, absolutely. And I appreciate you um, bringing that up because um, that is hugely important. And especially when you're talking about something like a transportation system that has um, a safety impact on the, the drivers and the users of that uh, system. And so at the city of Henderson, we have a very robust cybersecurity system. Um, uh, we spend a lot of time reviewing technology, reviewing software, uh, making sure that it has the proper controls in place. And we, um, we spend a lot of time on segmentation so, um, you know, IOT devices are out there, but their, um, their information is separated direct from the network. Um, so there isn't a direct interaction there. And so that you're, you're setting up multiple opportunities um, to provide security um, at the device level, but then also at the network level. Um, and so that you're considering all of those things. Uh, 
you know, after some conversations with some vendors, um, you know, that's definitely an area where we, we, we do need some work and to make sure that people understand and realize the risk and kind of hearkening back to our previous conversation about skill sets and training, that sort of thing is when you have somebody that traditionally works on a transportation system, they may not be aware of the cybersecurity risks of the things that they're implementing and the importance of coordinating with your um, IT department when you're deploying those kinds of things. And so there's uh, definitely some awareness that needs to be there. Um, the other piece of that too is uh, some standardization of the architecture and some understanding of how all of these pieces work together um, so that uh, you aren't accidentally introducing some risk when you didn't intend to. So, you know, I appreciate that question and it's something that we are always working on um, to make sure that um, we are protecting, protecting our residents and the users of the transportation system. Oh, that, that's great. I definitely appreciate hearing that because, uh, you know, some of the things that you mentioned a lot of businesses aren't, aren't even looking at. So it's, it's great to hear that um, government agencies are, are looking at segmentation and uh, integration of the different departments and stuff like that. So, so that's great to hear, especially since I'm, I'm now a resident of Henderson after about 20 years of living on the other side of the valley. So I, I love being here. Uh, I love your plans for Water Street, and, and uh, I love that Juan's decided to open back up and do curbside service again. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Yeah, we love Henderson. Yeah, that's great. And like I said, you know, as uh, you know, everything now is linked around technology. So security is um, is, is such an important element of everything we do. And uh, Alicia, you mentioned previously that you know, I mean, transportation and cities and and that environment, you know, is all really uh, you know covered around technology. And that skill set is now so varied. But obviously, you know, somebody in your position who has that. So like, you know, that uh, role within, within, within IT that's come from that transportation background, you know, you have that, you know, you've got those that two eyes, you know, looking at the different sides of things and ensuring that, you know, that the policies are in place to ensure that, you know, that security is, is key. Uh, I'm also conscious now that we're coming to the end of our coffee and conversation. Believe it or not, it's been 59 minutes so far. So, uh, we have, uh, before I uh, go into closing out, uh, Dan, do you want to talk about what's happening uh, on our next session, please? Yeah, our next Coffee and Conversation, I believe, is the 9 a.m. on the 7th of May. Um, really excited again. I don't know how we get speakers of this caliber, but we've got <laughs> Bryn Balcom of Robo Race out of the UK. Uh, Robo Race is reinventing motorsport as we know it using autonomous vehicles. Um, but I think primarily Bryn will be talking about um, safety and artificial intelligence, uh, which of course relates to autonomous vehicles as well. He's a, a wealth of knowledge and we really look forward to speaking to him. So again, 9 a.m. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. We'll, we'll be sending it, obviously, uh, communications out to everybody. But Alyssa, I just want to say a massive thank you for giving up an hour of your day and obviously under prep work we've put into today so a massive massive thank you to yourself uh uh for today and a big again thank you to to dan langford chris barker and zachary and obviously our our guests in the background so thank you so much for your time and welcome to the next coffee and conversation thank you all very much thanks, everyone. Oh, thanks conversation. So much.
Okay. Take care, everybody. Thank sure. you.